Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa aparuta de sangamatasa taura So this afternoon is an opportunity to reflect on Dhamma, reality, ultimate truth, the absolute. So Dhamma has no form, no quality, no size. But we take refuge in it. So what are we doing when we take refuge in, when we take refuge in a place or a relationship or a home, a community? They all have form, quality, size. So this is a question to ask yourself. What is the Dhamma apparent here and now that is, is formless? By asking yourself a question, your mind goes blank because you can't answer that question because the formless isn't about images or words or definitions. It's the reality of here and now, awareness, consciousness. So many, many of us have had to deal with our personalities, our emotional habits, our relationships with each other, and we've had to you know, with a whole habit tendency to see things in terms of form of whether it's beautiful or ugly, agreeable or disagreeable. So our whole personality is formed on those kind of images. What is right? What is wrong? What is true? What is false? How things should be? How they shouldn't be? what's lawful, what's unlawful, what's criminal, what's justice. These are words that we have that convey a kind of, they're all, all about forms, conditions, phenomena. <clears throat> so forms can be beautiful or ugly, right or wrong, true or false. 
And that's the, the form is the very thinking process itself. And since we come from societies generally based on ideals of how things should be, then we, we live in a, in a world where things aren't what they should be, according to the ideal. And what does that do to your mind when, when life isn't what it should be, when you aren't what you should be, or your relatives, your family, your society, community isn't what you want it to be or should be? So we make ourselves endlessly unhappy, suffering a lot, because Dhamma isn't about how things should or shouldn't be. Taking refuge in an ideal is you're asking for trouble in your life. Ideals are how things should be. But the ideal is a form. that we imagine, we create it. So it's, it's uh, you know, you can create a perfect image of perfection, of how a perfect monastic community should be. And then feel somehow critical of yourself or monks or nuns or other people or lay people because they don't fit into the ideal In monastic life, because we live by this rule, the Vinaya, moral precepts, then we, we form an ideal of what is right, what is wrong, what is uh, an offense. And by the, the, these kind of habits, patterns that we form with rules, regulations, moral precepts, Vinaya, disciplines, Traditions. Traditions can be ideals. You know, like the Thai forest tradition as we create it into an ideal of how a monastery should be. But when you live in monasteries, they are the way they are. Like Amravati's like this isn't a criticism of it, it's a kind of opening to the reality of, of uh, it's like this, is not saying you like it or don't like it is right or wrong, but it, it can only be at this moment like this. This moment here and now can only be this way. So we suffer from our critical minds. We, we, we hear the virtues of hiriotapa, of shame, for breaking the precepts or telling a lie or committing an offense. And then what is the difference between shame and guilt? Because guilt is, an, is a neurotic habit of the mind. Shame is, is, is more immediate. It's more recognition that we've, we've done something, uh, we've broken a precept, or uh, we told a lie. But then guilt is 
making it very personal and carrying it around with us and feeling guilt-ridden, feeling unworthy, feeling uh, we're not good enough, worrying what others think of us. Guilt is a, is a, is a neurotic habit of the critical mind. So, what is, who is aware of guilt? When you feel guilty about life, about existing, about being who you are in the present moment, you know, one can feel guilty about it being present here in the temple. Some people have such guilt complexes, they feel they, wherever they go, they contaminate the environment. That's not shame, that's not hiriotapa. Well, hiriotapa is, is in recognizing something. And guilt is the indulging in uh, in a personal obsession with uh, with being wrong or not being good enough, not being perfect. So this is where you know the, the mindfulness we can be aware. We we've all have guilt complexes that we, you know, we are very strong to identify with. We call it the inner tyrant, the voice that's always criticizing you, that's always kind of reminding you you're, there's something wrong, something not quite right about you, or you're not perfect, or, you know, it can get into madness of being totally... Uh, obsessed with wanting to kill yourself or or uh, destroy the world but it's all about forms isn't it forms are right and wrong precepts are about right and wrong hiriotapa otapa would really be translated as decorum being I mean more or less etiquette social agreed etiquette of the sangha ways we agree to, to relate to each other in a, as a community, verbally and physically, and the way we relate to the lay community. But what is it that's aware of guilt? And people who have guilt complexes, who have inner tyrants, are very much aware. Because we mention it, we make this quite plain that this is, this is not Dhamma, this is, this is a habit pattern of guilt that you've developed in your life through conditioning. And we see it in very personal, ways and, and, and uh, condemn ourselves or others. Isn't it? We can be very critical of others because they, they don't live up to our high standards. 
or the, what we think they, they should be, if they're senior monks, senior nuns. But the path of liberation isn't about finding perfect senior monks, perfect senior nuns, or perfect communities, or perfect monasteries, or situations, because you'll never find them. They just don't exist. Because conditioned phenomena cannot be perfect. Forms that arise and cease that depend on other conditions. You know, they're always dependent on something else. There's no independent perfection of form. So forms depend on space. And that's what we're in right now. These forms, our bodies sitting here in the temple. If this temple had no space, if it was solid bricks and cement, we wouldn't be able to meet here. The forms cannot live in, uh, manifest in something that that doesn't allow it to, where space allows forms to manifest. So we have trees and flowers and mountains and oceans, seas, male, men and women, societies, animals, fish, birds, all formed the formed world that manifests in space. And these forms, if we take them personally, then we live in a world that is always unsatisfying. It's going to be, life is going to be a disappointment for you. Because the forms, they change and they get old. We can see now just uh, tomorrow is the first day of September, autumn we consider a change in seasons. And we can watch the leaves fall off the trees. And suddenly there's just bare branches with no green leaves, no autumn leaves that fill out these branches. And yet our ideal may be of an eternal spring where there's flowers, sunshine, perfectly temperatured weather, that's an ideal, and you can paint a picture or take a photograph of life at its best, of springtime in England on a bright sunny day, it looks like perfection. So with mindfulness and clear comprehension, sati sampatanya, intuitive awareness, is where wisdom operates. Wisdom isn't about the best or how things should be. Because we, you know, we all educated enough to know, uh, you know, about democracy and non-corruption and honesty and fairness and freedom and equality. 
all the best that you can possibly think. But life is like this, being human, being this being right here sitting in this chair speaking to you, it's like this. is a way I've developed of opening to, to accepting life as a flow of changing conditions rather than fixing on my own mental state or, or something wrong that I don't like about the community or the world or the political system. Because you can, you know, in the early days of when I was junior monk, in Thailand with Wat Pa Pong, I'd watch myself, you know, being alone in my kuti. And I'd bring up all kinds of things of the past to feel guilty about. What I should, should I apologize or will I be reborn in a lower state because of things I've said or done in the past? And one can become obsessed with resentment. How many of you don't have any resentments about your life? Where you have perfect parents, perfect situations, education, opportunities, where you've been treated fairly and justly, honorably, respectfully, all your life. You know, I don't think anybody can claim that kind of experience. So when we get old also, we, we, memories manifest in the mind, especially of early life. <clears throat> Sitting in my kuti here, I have so many memories of my childhood, my youth, and so on. Because uh, at 87, there's a long time once lived a long time to have a lot of memories. If I didn't understand memories and didn't reflect on the emptiness of memories of Sanya Kanda, then at, at this age, you know, it would be a miserable state to, to, to live with guilt about mistakes I made in the past, things I've said or done in the past or not being good enough as a person, as a senior monk, or, you know, the inner tyrant knows, doesn't know how to say, you're really a good person. You know, you can kind of think that to yourself, but the inner tyrant will never allow you to, to honor yourself for what you really are which is this perfection of awareness of Dhamma. So you can't trust the inner tyrant. It lies, it, it's obsession, it's a, it's a habit, it's not a real being, it's a habit pattern you've developed through thinking, through remembering. So memory is the past. The past is a memory. And this, this is not just a 
doctrinal statement, it's a reflection. And it, it, when you begin to examine this yourself, you see this for yourself. Don't believe just what I'm saying or disbelieve, but examine, bring up memories, bring up things you've done in the past. Uh, they make you feel guilty or your guilt complexes or your fears about the future, you know, all about the past, what you said yesterday to somebody or didn't say that you should have. And, and you can sit in your kuti, in your room, and get caught in a whirlpool of guilt and remorse and resentment, carrying grudges about the injustices of one's life. And what does that do? It just creates suffering, dukkha, the first noble truth. We have happy memories of the past. We can indulge in just our past, our successes, our, our the accolades we've received, the prizes we've won, the, the uh, respect we get from others, we can we can develop a appreciation and obsess ourselves with, with positive thinking. But underlying that is its opposite, is the guilt complex, the inner tyrant, that is basically a critical function. It's functioning. It's the thinking process. So as I've said many times, reflected many times, the nature of thought, you know, to, to realize what thinking is. You're not a thought. You're not a memory. You're not a person that has any real import, uh, quality to it or essence. These forms are empty phenomena. So guilt, memories, uh, is, is an empty phenomenon rather than a, some kind of personal possession or fault or obsession. So we begin to see things as they are. This is where wisdom operates. Wisdom is awakening to reality. And reality is here and now. So the future is is imagined, you can imagine a happy life in the future. You can imagine, you know, getting cancer, getting COVID pandemic, dying from being unable to breathe. You can imagine that your life, you're going to get Alzheimer's disease or dementia, cancer, uh, all these formidable images that we can create in the present about the future. What if everything falls apart? What if the monastery, nobody comes and feeds us? What if the lay people get disillusioned with the monks and nuns because we're not perfect? What happens, what will happen to Amaravati if there's no monks or nuns here in the future, who will take on the duties of 
when Ajahn Amaro is no longer here. You know, then we, you know, people, monks and nuns can spend time just worrying about what's going to happen in the future without really reflecting that that is imagination. Like when Lung Po Cha was alive, before he got ill, none of us who were disciples of Ajahn Chah, you know, when I went to stay with him at Wat Pa Pong, 1967, we, there were only 22 monks. I was the 22nd bhikkhu. And uh, there's a relatively poor forest monastery But we were all absolutely, because he was such a charismatic monk, he had great charisma, he had a marvelous personality. And so every monk there, as I recall, as I remember, we were all devoted to, to uh, following Lung Po Cha. We didn't doubt any of his decisions or we, we did, you know, we kind of surrendered ourselves to the great master. And it was quite pleasant to do that. I found it very pleasant just to, to let Lumpa Cha decide how, where I should be, what branch monastery I should be in, where I should go. And then when Nung Po Cha became ill, the last 10 years of his life, he was no longer capable of, of speaking. And what's going to happen to, the, to Wat Pa Pong when, when there's no Nung Po Cha in the high seat, you know, and people, lay people were concerned and everybody was wanting us to get Lung Po Cha back to being his ebullient, charming, charismatic self that we remembered. We remembered Lung Po Cha was humorous, fun to be with, wise. We, we didn't like him to be disabled like that, unable to speak, unable to feed himself. So I remember visiting Wat Pa Pong at the time at the hospital in Bangkok, Chula Longkorn Hospital, when he was there, and there was this desperate feeling among the monks who were taking care of Ajahn Chah. We've got to get him back into what he was before. We, we don't want Lung Pa Cha to be like this. We want our Ajahn, you know, the bullying, charming, charismatic Ajahn Chah, we want that. And that is a memory. And Lung Po Cha was always emphasizing memories are empty phenomena. That this is, it's like this. Ajahn Cha now is like this. Which is, then that reflects that we don't maybe like the way he is like this, but we, we're not following that, our you know, own personal emotional habit patterns of wanting him to go back and be the Lung Po Cha we all liked. But those of us who were reflecting, or Lung Po Cha's teaching was about reflecting on the way things are, began to see 
I began to see myself want, not wanting Lung Po Cha to be sick, wanting him to be like he was before. Because of this ability to reflect with wisdom on the way things are, I began to, I had insight. I thought, previously I depended so much on Lung Po Cha. It was a good dependency, it was someone you could trust. But it was a dependency. I, I enjoyed being the disciple, the junior monk, in the wake of Ajahn Chah's charisma. But the reality of the moment, that moment in Chulalongkorn Hospital, I remember feeling, now I have to find that in myself. This wisdom is here and now. It's not about always thinking back in when Lung Po Cha was alive and well in Wat Pa Pong, and that memories of the old days are like this, they're pleasant. I remember people thinking that I must have suffered an enormous amount of in those first few years because of the transition, being the first Western monk there. But I look back, my memories of the first my first year with Ajahn Chah, when I look back at, at, the, at my age at the present time, I don't have unpleasant memories of it. Those were the good old days. <laughs> so you, you, kind of, you recognize that that is a memory, that it's not going to ever happen again like that. Should I go around the world looking for another charismatic teacher to inspire me and I can devote myself to? You know, that, that probably occurred to me. But the power of Lung Po Cha's teaching, this reflective awareness, Sati Sampatanya, was so ingrained in his teaching, so consciously encouraging us to do this, that my insight, when I first saw Lung Po Cha in a wheelchair at the hospital, was now I have the teaching, the Buddhist teaching, Lung Po Cha's encouragement and wisdom teaching. Now it has to be Sumedho's wisdom, it has to use this rather than depend upon charismatic teachers or ideal monastic situations. So it, it was empowering, an empowering moment. I can still remember cle clearly getting on the floor in front of Lung Po Cha in a wheelchair, crying, because it was sad, you know, heartbreaking to see him like that, totally, you know, like a, a, compared to a sack of potatoes, where he as a personality was very bullying, outgoing, kind of charming, radiant, luminous person. And to see that person just like a sack of potatoes slumped into a wheelchair was incredibly sad. But the insight, came 
kind of empowering me to take on what Lung Pa Cha was always encouraging me to do and no longer feeling I was, you know, I couldn't look for another teacher to depend upon because I had the insight. Lung Pa Cha was, you know, whether he was uh, in a wheelchair, a sack of potatoes, or we could get him back to good health, or whatever happened in the future. The insight came through this wisdom of here and now, mindful it, this sadness is, a, is a, because of the conditions that exist. The feeling of sadness, I couldn't, it wasn't like I couldn't, was, I shouldn't feel sad, but the conditions for sadness were definitely there at that moment. And being aware of that, that, it, that sadness, the mood of sadness, not wanting things to be like this, is like this. And as simple as that, it's not saying I shouldn't, I shouldn't feel sad, I should have no emotions, I'm just a completely mindful kind of Buddha Rupa. That is impossible in these forms. These forms are sensory, sensitive forms. Buddha Rupas haven't, you know, they, they aren't sensitive. They have form of a human being, but their eyes, they can't see. They have eyes on them, like the Buddha Rupa on the pedestal behind me. Has eyes, ears, nose. I don't know if it has a tongue. <laughs> but it doesn't feel heat or cold. So these forms that we call ourselves, that we identify with all kinds of qualities, pleasant or unpleasant, good or bad qualities. You know, we, we can spend our whole life, waste a lifetime as a human, in this human birth, just trying to perfect what's imperfect feeling not, you know, being caught up in habits you develop when you're a child, when you're a teenager. Emotional habits that we can carry from our childhood, from our youth into old age, and still feel guilty or unworthy or regret or guilt about the past. So the reflection is that past is a memory, and that, that's, a, that's a true, that's the way things are. Every memory you have yesterday, for all of us, is a memory. This morning was a memory. Tomorrow is an imagination, is an image. We, we, we have a habit, we have calendars and so forth to create this sense of time as our reality. But this is the last day of August. That's what we call it. This day doesn't say it is the last day of August. As today, when you wake up, is it announced that it's the 31st of August, 2021? These are conditions we project onto this morning 
today. These are human-created conditions, words, concepts, forms, qualities, in space, in consciousness. And that's the way it is. It's not, I'm not criticizing, there's nothing wrong with that, but noting that being human, having a form, having senses, having a mind that thinks, that remembers, that imagines, is like this. When you sort that out, you begin to see you're not that. You're not a person. You're not a form. Awareness is formless. Consciousness has no form. Space has no form. If space had form, we wouldn't be able to be here. We wouldn't manifest. So space and then the forms come and go, change, get born, die, appear, disappear. And that's what forms do. And that's the way it is. So we're, this is the ability that we have in this human birth that we're experiencing here and now to reflect on the way it is, not try to create a perfect society. We can do the best we can to, to make everything as fair and just and, and right as possible in, a, in the Herodamavati. There's no kind of heedless, de deliberate heedlessness. But it's still, you know, one still suffers here at Amravati because we think, we, we, we make judgments about ourselves, about each other. And judgments are always about this is right, this is wrong, good or bad, true and false. And that's all the thinking mind can do. It can just, it's about opposites. North Pole, South Pole. It's we who label these, the North Pole. You know, does it announce itself as the North Pole or do we project in English the word North Pole onto what we imagine the North Pole is while we're sitting here at Amaravati? People fight over boundaries. You know, like national boundaries. Brexit is an example of, of this belief that England is separate from Europe. Because we think in terms of of boundaries as, as ultimate reality, as fairness, as justice, rather than is Europe, the European Union, is it, that's definitely an ideal concept. That's an ideal, isn't it? A, a union of European countries that get along with each other, support each other and help each other, that aren't just nationalistic and, and uh, tribal and, and and only think of their, their own people at the expense of the others. Now the ideal of a union, United States, 
United Kingdom, this sense of union is an ideal. It's a beautiful ideal, admittedly, but it is that because how united can we all be here at Amravati? You know, we have a form we agree to, the Vinaya, the precepts, the tradition. That's the form we've chosen. We've asked to, to live within this form and ordination. So it gives us, it gives us a, a form to reflect from that isn't just personal. Would you, would any monk here, if you were creating a Vinaya at this time, would you create exactly the same Vinaya that you recite every fortnight? <laughs> Some of the rules are, they make no sense to us in modern times. But the form is, is an agreed form, so we, we keep to the form, the tradition, because of our trust in the Buddha's wisdom and, and whether we agree with it or disagree, like it or don't like it. These are moods, perceptions that we create in our minds. And that's what we reflect on. We, we're not asking you to to blindly follow forms and, and agree and think everything's the best here. That's asking too much of anybody. But the encouragement is to be aware. Awareness that all conditions change. Wat Pa Pong can't, can't go back to being the Wat Pa Pong of 1967. Never, that's impossible. Now it's quite wealthy, it has a lot of monks. Uh, the buildings of Kutis are greatly improved. The Sala, Lumpur Liam built beautiful Sala, much better than the one Lumpur Cha built. And I remember when, uh, when Lumpur Cha became ill, you know, every, what's going to happen to Wat Bapong? Because a lot of the monks didn't, uh, didn't see themselves as disciples of Ajahn Liam. So they were critical of him. He's not like, you'd hear the complaints, he's not like our Lung Cha. Well, you can't help feeling like that because he's not like Lung Cha. He's, he's like this. And so this is a wisdom operating rather than getting caught up with criticizing Lumpur Liam because he's not exactly like Lumpur Cha. That would be asking too much of anybody. But Lumpur Cha's teaching wasn't a pointing at himself as a perfect monk, a perfect specimen of enlightened humanity. You know, he never said he was anything at all. He never claimed to be an arahant. You know, we all wanted him to, we all assumed he was. 
and if anybody's an arahant on this planet, it must be Ajahn Chah. Well, that was my own personal projection. But the teaching wasn't about holding on to memories of Ajahn Chah, but about being aware of if I'm doing that, I'm, the, the, the attachment I have to memories of the past is like this. Not saying I shouldn't have memories of the past, but the clinging, what they call upadana, the grasping of memories of the past, the cause of suffering. You suffer. So to this day, Wat Pa Pong has has managed to survive. It's uh, Cha has become more famous than he was when he was alive. He's been translated into different languages. His teaching, stories, biographies and so forth have been written. And all this is, is now, you know, phenomena that's manifested just with, a, with one person, memory of one person, one good monk. But the teaching, you know, the Buddhist teaching is the same thing. This Buddhist teaching, Four Noble Truths, we assume is 2,564 years old. And that's a projection we all agree upon in Buddhist world, Theravada Buddhist world. So we, we give a date to when the Gotama, the Buddha, the enlightened master, was alive teaching Dhamma. What was he teaching? What was the point of the Four Noble Truths? Was it pointing at himself? Was the Buddha, enlightened Buddha, pointing at himself as I'm an enlightened Buddha? Or he's pointing at something very banal and ordinary like suffering to, to his disciples, five disciples that were devoted, that had all kinds of experience with meditation but had never reflected on the way things are never had the insight into Dhamma. But we're creating, you know, like, you can refine conscious experience through concentration practices. You can get out of the coarser, gross forms of, of the physical world by concentrating on refined objects to the point of neither perception or non-perception. But refinement is still dependent upon conditions if there's no wisdom that generates from it. It's, it's certainly refined and beautiful, peaceful, blissful. But here and now is like this. And we have these physical bodies, they get old, they have diseases, there's aging process, mental process, dementia problems, 
incapacity, you know, no longer able to walk properly and so forth. These are part of the condition, the manifest experience. But is this a is this what I am? Is this is this all I am amount to? Is an old man upon a stick? <laughs> or is it much more to much something much something that's much better than than an aging body and a lot of memories? So what is the refuge is in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. And this is why in these opportunities that you give me to reflect on Dhamma, I keep mentioning this 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 word reflection. Because we oftentimes we think of meditation as doing something, getting something, getting tranquility, getting peaceful, like meditation. You're you're not properly you you, know, you feel disappointed when you don't feel enough peace and tranquility when you get caught up in emotional habits. You feel guilty. Have you been wasting your life because you aren't tranquil like you imagine you should be or would like to be? You know, and then these are questions to ask yourself. Is tranquility here and now, what is tranquil? What is real peace, is awareness? And this you can find for yourself. Thinking is not peaceful. That's why with samatha practices you stop thinking, you focus on one object, absorption into an object. And it does take you to peace. But if there's not wisdom involved, then that peace is easily disrupted through various other conditions that arise the aging process, sickness, COVID, pandemic, climate change, dementia, Alzheimer's. What happens to somebody with Alzheimer's? Can they get enlightened? You know, so we, we look at old age as a person, a person gets enlightened and they, they you know, unexpected Lung Pao Cha to, to not get sick. When he was alive, when he was in good health, you know, we, we just took him for granted. Our teacher, he's really good, and he's the best teacher in Thailand. We created a, an image, a, a perception of perfection, felt a lot of love for Adalumpacha, personal love, respect. And those are nice feelings to have. You know, that's pleasant feeling, that's positive kind of feeling, a joyful feeling of, 
loving, of respecting. But we can't, they are feelings. Loving and respecting is about feeling some positive sense towards someone else. So that is subject to conditions, to the changing phenomena that we, that we identify with, our own physical forms, our gender, our nationality, our age, their own non-self, their anatta. But what is aware of non-self? Is, is it anatta? Is awareness anatta? And so we take the word anatta and make it like we believe there's no self can be another doctrinal belief, an assumption we make without any wisdom involved in it. So this emphasizing that all sankharas are impermanent, basic teaching of the, of the Pali tradition, sape sankhara anicca. That really is wisdom. But just grasping that, believing it, is not wisdom. Because then you operate from assumptions that all conditions are impermanent because you believe that, because it's in the scriptures. So the bhatibhata, or meditation, is investigating. Is that true? You know, is, is, it, is that the reality that I'm experiencing? Permanent, can you find permanent conditions through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, through thinking? And I couldn't find a permanent condition. But what is aware of the changing conditions? That's Buddha, Dhamma, that's wisdom. Is Buddha a non-self? Is Buddha anatta? You know, the words are, they're just words. But when we take refuge in Buddha, what is it we're taking refuge in? A memory of a sage who lived 2,564 years ago? Or in a tradition, or in a scriptural teaching? Or the invitation, the encouragement the Buddha gave by laying down a teaching that is so appropriate to the here and now. It's not about ancient Indian culture or civilization at that time, 2,564 years ago. There is suffering, and this we can all relate to even when we're in the perfect condition, perfect situations. And the thing with seeking perfection from conditioned phenomena is it's always a dread because we know in our heart that it's going to change, that it's not going to stay like this. Monasteries, communities reach their peak where there's harmony and everything is wonderful and 
and that, but we know that it's not going to stay that way. Due to changes that we can't control. Because sankharas are beyond our control. They change according to their nature. What is arise, what arises ceases, what is born dies. So are you, that which is aware of a sankara, is that a sankara? Ask yourself that question. Can awareness, conscious awareness, sati sampachanya, just be another sankara? Because can sankaras be aware of themselves? You know, and these are questions to investigate to investigate the reality of our of experience within a form, with the way you are as a personality, whatever way that might appear to you or to the rest of us. We can't be someone else. We might like to be, we admire certain monks or situations. We'd, we, we'd, we'd like to be like that. That's another sankara, isn't it? The wish to be something else, to be like somebody else. And so this is just an honest reflection on the, the basic teachings, sape sankara nature, all conditions are impermanent. Sape tama anatta, there is no individual self that the individual self is an illusion we create through ignorance, through identity with the forms, the physical body, the person, the personality, the emotional habit patterns. We, we take very personally and become obsessed by our own views and opinions without, and this, this is about awakening to that. It's like this, to be obsessed, to have obsessions about justice and freedom and equality and fairness. You're obsessed with grasping ideals, but is life going to be like that? Can the flow of sankharas ever be fair or just? or permanently right or wrong. So instead of seeing guilt as some kind of neurotic, personal neurotic problem, see it as, a, you know, it's teaching you about guilt is impermanent. Can you feel guilty all the time? 24 hours, can you sleep and feel guilty while sleeping? Can you feel angry all the time? Is anger some kind of latent energy within your soul? Some kind of curse? That the forces of Mara, the devils, the satanic forces in the universe have cursed you with anger and resentment, jealousy and fear. You know, you can believe 
people believe in those kind of imaginations, images they create, but on investigation they're just images that manifest and disappear, demanifest accordingly. So the liberation isn't through perfection of sankaras, which is impossible, but in seeing the imperfection, the changing, what is born must die. Birth is the cause of death. What is never born never dies. Consciousness through the senses depends upon seeing properly and, and good eyesight, good hearing and so forth. Sensory consciousness, that we experience consciousness through senses. But consciousness aware of senses rather than just operating on the, on the sensual level of life by reacting to pleasure, pain, success and failure, praise and blame, we begin to trust in Dhamma, apparent here and now and timeless. So these words, apparent here and now, is you know, you're, you're conscious now. It's apparent. Timelessness. The bodies are about time. This, this desana is about time. You know, uh, I manifest, I came into the temple, and then I'll go out in a few minutes. <laughs> this is the way things are. You know, the way sankaras operate according to other conditions. But what doesn't change, if you, be, if you trust it, is awareness. Conscious awareness, mindfulness, Dhamma, the reality of the here and now, the eternal present. So this is an offering I offer you for today.